If you ask a child, it would be birthday cake at a birthday party. Uh, when someone proposes, we expect someone to bend their knee. At a music concert, we expect the crowd, when asked how you're going, to not answer the question, but just yell and scream as loud as they can. At the footy, we expect a banner. At an art opening, we, ex- we expect cheese and wine. And we certainly expect bread with cheese at a Frenchman's house. Um, we expect a kiss at a wedding and we expect people to be glad and to celebrate when pe- someone who's been unwell and sick for such a long time, when they finally recover. Well, we can have different expectations depending on the situation and the, and the event. But when it comes to our passage this morning, I think we'll find that what we expect doesn't happen. Look, we've been reading the book of John's Gospel for the last uh, few weeks here at church, and it's been giving us a really good picture of Jesus and his identity. We've seen that he is the divine, eternal word, that he is the God-man who became flesh and lived among us, who has made God the Father known to us, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Messiah the Son of God, God's chosen King, the one who offers and gives eternal life and salvation and whose word is powerful. And we've seen Jesus' identity come out as he's interacted with various people uh, along the way. And this morning he continues to do the remarkable. As a divine Son of God heals and gives life through his almighty powerful word. And we find Jesus once again in Jerusalem uh, for one of the Jewish uh, festivals. We're not told which festival that he's there for, so it really doesn't doesn't matter. But what we do know is he's in Jerusalem and he's near a pool. Have a look there at, uh, at verse 2. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, uh, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. We get that kind of detail there, five covered colonnades, because it's a real place. Uh, You can go there. In fact, I've been told you can go there today and and check it out yourself. Uh, So I think we get that to give us, uh, to to acknowledge this, these are real places and real people that we're talking about. But if we continue there from verse 3, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And so Jesus heads to this pool and, and it's a place where heaps of disabled people would gather hoping to be healed. You see, at this pool there was a bit of superstition uh, linked with this pool. That people thought that there were these healing powers associated with the pool that when, when the water was, was stirred up uh, and someone touched the water, the first in, well, they would be healed. We kind of get a bit of, a bit of an understanding of that from verse 7. But you see, what's fascinating about the idea and the concept of a place like that, uh, these, these healing shrine things, was that that wasn't a Jewish practice. That was more of a pagan, non-Jewish thought uh, that, that these uh, higher power type things could come and heal by people touching in the water and that kind of stuff. And so, but despite it being a pagan thing, the Jewish leaders of the time, they kind of just turned a blind eye to it. They kind of tolerated, even though it was quite an objection to, to their Jewish uh, understanding. Well, Jesus is at this pool. But did you notice that verse 4 is missing uh, from, from your Bible? 
Uh, you might have a, a footnote that tells you what verse 4 says, uh, but the reason it's been removed is because wise scholarly people, not me, but people whose day job is to look at these te- texts and to look at this kind of stuff, they've realised as they've, they've put all these copies and stuff together, particularly from, say, earlier ones, that actually the language that John used or supposedly used in this verse is actually really different to the way that he would write and communicate stuff. And so these guys have, have realised actually it, it probably wasn't John who, who wrote that. Something to, to, to give you aware, I think John uh, spoke about this well uh, last year at our, at our training evenings, but four, in 400 AD, that is the time when the New Testament was kind of brought together. Before that point, they were all just individual letters and gospels all kind of scattered around the place, all separate kind of documents. In 400, it was all brought together. But those letters and those Gospels, what happened was is they were kind of sent out. People were like, yeah, this is great. We need this encouragement. And so, so what would happen was they'd be copied. And so this would be copied and, and spread and copied and copied and copied and copied. And so there are heaps of copies all over the place. Because you know, there's, there's no photocopiers like we might have uh, today. And so what they reckon happened was that some scholar, as he's kind of looked at this, has gone, oh, you know what, people don't really understand what this pull is. I'll give a bit more extra information. So you know how sometimes you might do this, I certainly do, or have in the past, you might write a little bit of a note in, your, in, your, in the column of your Bible, kind of say, oh, here's a bit of extra information and stuff for you. It seems like they think that that's kind of, kind of what happened. He's written this kind of side note about, oh, here's some info about the pull. But see, what's happened as it's, then being copied and copied and copied again as these little side notes accidentally been slipped uh, into the text. But thankfully, scholars today have kind of come to realise actually it's not there and so they've removed it. And I think that's actually quite a, quite a good thing. It kind of shows us and gives us confidence that scholars, they are examining the text regularly, checking and analysing to make sure that parts that don't belong are, are, are being removed. And I think that gives us great confidence of what we have before us is actually what John intended for, for us to read today. And while some, of, some people might say that, you know what, you can't trust the Bible because it's been changed. It's been changed so much o- o- over the years. Uh, I think that actually what we can see here in, in, in this change is it's not necessarily, it, stuff's been removed. Not stuff's been added in to kind of, ooh, make it seem more better. And Actually, stuff's been uh, removed. Um, <clears throat> So I think the idea of saying the Bible's been changed is, 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 is not true. It's un, unfounded. I don't think we can just write off the Bible and say, look, it has changed so much over time because I don't think that's right. We, we can say, look, I think the Bibles are full of lies. The people who wrote it, they're lies, they're, they're deceptive, whatever. I think we can say we disagree with what it says. Uh, I think those are okay disagreements. But to say that it's changed so much over time, I think... I don't think that's right because the text has stood up to intense examination and analysis over the times so that what we have before us is uh, what John intended us. Well, back to the pool. And uh, what we see is like a, a hospital scene, the kind of thing we might see in Scrubs or at some other medical show. Heaps of sick people and disabled people seeking uh, to get better. Uh, and it's interesting to note, just as on an aside, uh, today, as modern faith healers, as they do their thing, they do so under the, under the lights uh, in their churches. But they never go to hospitals, do they? If they could really do the things that they claim, that they could really do these miraculous healings, why not go to where the sick people are and go to the hospitals? But you see, that is unlike Jesus. He does. 
He goes to where the sick people are and he does the truly remarkable. He's in Jerusalem and he goes to where the sick people gather who seek to be made well. And you see, that is what we see, but not through the stirring of water like the superstition would have it, but see, Jesus gives life through the power of his word. And so in verse 5, we, we meet this man. Have a look there. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. This man was really unwell. It's not just some food intolerance or, or a bad back or, or a stiff neck. He'd been paralyzed, unable to walk for 38 years. This guy needed a lot of help from others. And he's been this way for, for ages, 38 years. That is probably longer than a lot of us in this room have been alive. And, and I am 38. That is my whole life. But not only was he lame and unable to walk, you see, his muscles would have wasted away to nothing. You might be aware you might have broken a leg or uh, know someone who's smashed a leg or done an ACL or something like that. And their leg might be in a brace or in a cast for a really long time, say up to three months. And when their leg is finally healed, is everything back to normal? Well, no. Because they're in activity for three months, their muscles have have reduced uh, and wasted. It can actually be quite funny, really. As you know, you see this like massive kind of just normal leg and then this like really shrinky kind of time because, you know, it's just wasted. That's just me. I like to laugh at that stuff. Sorry. Uh, But... But for the person to get back to their normal range of motion, to get into their normal movement and mobility and stuff, it is hard work. It is grueling, long physio work as they try to work on rebuilding their muscles that they may rehabilitate to get back to their former state. It is a long and painful, grueling road. But, but as you return back to your, to your normal movement, it's, it's, it's worth it, isn't it? And so you can just imagine this guy, 38 years, the muscle wastage uh, on this guy. And so Jesus sees this man and he says to him in verse 6, do you want to get well? You know, as, as, as Jesus does. And the man responds, uh, obviously had, might not have heard about Jesus, not really realising who it is that's, that's speaking to him. And so the man kind of responds in the way that, He's thinking about the place. Remember, he's at this pool where this superstition stuff kind of happened. And so he responds there in verse 7. Have a look there. He says, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. There is no one there to help him, no friend to help him, care for him and bring him into the pool. You see, Jesus just ignores that. He doesn't really respond to that. He merely says, verse 8, have a look there, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And by speaking his almighty, powerful word, Jesus heals this man in an instant. He's instantly healed. No surgery, no rehab, no grueling physio, just a word from Jesus and the man jumps up like a spring chicken picks up his mat and walks it is absolutely amazing 38 years paralyzed the word of Jesus and he's up instantly walking but see what's really interesting about this man's response 
to Jesus is, I get, or should I say, really lack of response to Jesus. You see, I, I think his actions don't meet, they don't, certainly don't meet my expectations of what I would have expected. He doesn't turn around and, and thank Jesus. Thanks so much for doing all this stuff. There's, there's no recognition that Jesus has done this. In fact, we see later that he doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't even know the person that's made him well. Jesus does the extraordinary in healing this man, laying for 38 years and heals him in an instant by speaking his powerful word. And so what we see next shouldn't be that surprising really uh, if we know our, our Gospels. Because in verse 9 we see that the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. Now whenever the Sabbath is mentioned in the Gospels, we see and we'll notice that opposition arises. And the first person to be opposed, well that is the healed man and he's opposed by the Jewish leaders. Have a look there from verse 10. The Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Isn't that astounding? Isn't that shocking? So surprising? It's certainly not what I would expect. Here's a dude who's been disabled for 38 years. 38 years. And they don't marvel at this miraculous healing. He's up and walking. And what do they want to do? They want to pick a fight because they think he's broken the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was a a day of rest uh, that God had commanded his people to keep. It was a day to stop from your your regular work and to rest. It was a day of of thankfulness, a day to trust that God will provide for you on day and to thank him for the way that he had provided for you. It was a day of rest from your regular work. But you see, the Jews, they had turned this day into, into rules, And they had really lost the point and purpose of the Sabbath. You see, they had created 39 categories of work, prohibiting people from doing all sorts of stuff on the the Sabbath, uh, including carrying something from one place to another. And so in this man's case, carrying his bed mat. But you see, that was not the point of the Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath wasn't about, oh, actually, can I move his microphone stand a little bit over on the Sabbath? Oh, can't do that. That was never the point. The point was to rest from your regular work and to be thankful that God had provided and God provides for you. And just as a side for us here today, as, as people of grace who are not bound by the Jewish law and the Sabbath, rest is still good for us. If you're working seven days a week, working all the time, then you're showing that you don't trust God that you don't trust that God will provide for you, that you can stop for one day a week and rest and be thankful for the way that he's cared and provided for you. You see, we need to take breaks. It doesn't matter what day, the day doesn't matter, but we do need to rest. And so let this be an encouragement, a reminder to you to, to rest well in what God has provided and given you. And so as this healed man is accused of breaking the Sabbath and he faces opposition, what happens? 
Well, he avoids the difficulty, he avoids the situation and blames the one who healed him. Have a look there from verse 11. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. He told me to do this. It's not my fault. Oh, you notice he's just kind of shifting the blame here. Uh, when he's asked who's healed him, he has no idea. He doesn't even know who healed him. You see, this man's response is drastically different from others who interact with Jesus and are healed by him. What we're going to see in John 9 in the coming weeks, this blind man uh, who receives his sight, and it's, it's a miraculous. But as this blind man faces opposition, how does he respond? Well, he marvels at this amazing healing. Uh, despite being uh, opposed, he praises God that only God could do this miraculous thing. No blame shifting. But, but not this healed man today. When he faces opposition, he wants to blame his unknown healer. Well, after interacting with the Jewish leaders, Jesus finds this healed man once more. And we actually discover in verse 14 why it is that he's been unwell for so, for so long. Have a look there from verse 14. Jesus says to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Did you notice there that it's his sin that has caused him to be unwell? Now, Jewish thought at that time was that if you're suffering, if you're sick, if bad things are happening to you, then it's because you are sinning, you are doing the wrong thing, God is punishing you. We see that in, in Job, in the book of Job, where Job's friends kind of say all this stuff to, to, to Job uh, in his suffering. And although that seems to be the case here, that is not always the case. Suffering and sickness today isn't always linked with sin. We see that with the blind man that I spoke about earlier. He was born blind. Why? Not because of anyone's sin, but so that God would be glorified. And it's the same for us today. We can't be sure why we are sick or suffering like we might be. Uh, and so we can't say to someone, you're sick because of your sin. We don't know that. And so we can't say that to someone. But the reality is we may be. We could be suffering because of our sin. And so when we are suffering and going through hard times, we might need to stop and pause and reflect and look in and, uh, and ask ourselves, is there unrepented sin in my life? Is there areas of ungodliness that I need to repent of that is causing this? But it may not be that. God can and does use suffering and hardship in our lives to bring God glory and so that we may grow in our love and trust of God through them. You hear these wonderful yet sad stories of, of Christians, uh, people who trust the Lord Jesus, who suffer greatly. And then as a, as a result of their suffering, their illness, whatever, they've, they've sadly died. And, and while that's the sad bit, the wonderful thing, when I, I love hearing these stories, in light of their example and the way that they spoke and the way that they trusted God through that period, is where unbelievers have seen that witness and, and heard the words and, and come to know and trust Jesus. They, they've come, become believers. Isn't that wonderful? 
And so on this side of heaven, we won't know why we are suffering, but we must remain faithful. God never promises to heal us from our suffering. He does not promise to heal us when we are sick. If you are told that God promises to make you well, whether from the pulpit, from a preacher or from a friend, uh, that is not right. They are lying to you. God does not promise to make us well. Don't listen to them. God does not promise to make us well in their here and now. But you see, what God does promise is so much better than what can be done here and now. He offers the truly miraculous by dealing with our sin once and for all through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he promises to forgive us despite our wrongdoing, despite all the things we do in transgressing against him. He promises to forgive us when we trust in his son. And God, he raised Jesus to life, rose him from the grave, and he promises to do the same for us. When we trust and believe in him, he will give us eternal life, that we too will live beyond the grave. You see, these are a sure and certain hope in the here and now. Our inheritance at what is to come is sure. It is promised by God and it will happen. And that is something that we can hold on to, these wonderful promises of God in the here and now, in the ups and downs of life. Jesus speaks to this healed man. And I wonder if you noticed in verse 14 that he warns him. A threat even. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What could be worse than being paralysed for 38 years? Jesus is speaking about eternal damnation, eternal separation from, from God, away from God's goodness forever. And that comes for any of us who reject him. Nothing can be worse than that. And with Jesus' warning still ringing in his ears, the healed man finds the Jewish leaders and tells them that Jesus made him well. The healed man faced opposition from the religious leaders and he responds not by by praising God and, and defending Jesus for doing this miraculous healing, but instead shifts the blame and dobs Jesus in. Jesus has done the miraculous, the incredible, in healing, in doing something that only God can do. He healed this man paralysed for 38 years. And the expected joy that, that we might expect from this amazing healing, well, it doesn't come. Instead, it brings hostility and opposition for Jesus because he's healed on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders, well, they begin to persecute him. And when Jesus speaks to them, he, he makes his defence. And what he says actually is probably different to what I would have done in that situation. I'm glad I'm not Jesus and, and he is. So uh, that's good. But I would have tried to argue with, with them. I would have said, you know what? You're all wrong. Let me show you. You've got the Sabbath all wrong. He hasn't done anything. I haven't done anything. It's all good. It's okay. It's okay to do good on the Sabbath. I would have tried to defend and show you how, how they're wrong. But, but not Jesus. 
Have a look there at verse 17. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying here. They would have agreed in practice, particularly to that first part, that God is always at work. You see, God doesn't take a Sabbath day's rest. He doesn't stop from his continuing provision and sustaining of the world. The flowers continue to grow each day. The sun rises and sets every day. They, they wouldn't have disagreed with that first part. But see, it's what Jesus is saying about what God does and what he does. He is linking himself with God. You see, their issue is what the, Jesus is claiming, that what God can do, Jesus can do. You see, he is claiming to be God. And he's calling God his father. You see, Jews at that time, they didn't call God father. You see, for us today, we, we might think there's anything strange about that because we, we have that privilege. We have that privilege thanks to Jesus teaching us how to pray. We call God our father, our father in heaven. But see, the Jews then, they, they, they didn't have that. And so by calling God his father, they knew that he was claiming to be God, the son of God, and that was just wrong. That was blasphemous. How dare Jesus claim to be God's equal and claim to be God. But see, here's the thing. If, 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 if they had just linked what Jesus had been saying with the, with the actions that he had been doing, they would have realized that actually he was the son of God. He was the promised future king. There's this passage in, in Isaiah that will be up on the screen that, that they would have known about. And it was a passage that spoke about what it will be like when the son of God, the Messiah, when he comes and what, what will kind of happen around. Uh, then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. These miraculous signs, these miracles that Jesus had been performing, well, they showed that he was this guy, that, that he had arrived, God's chosen king had arrived in the flesh and was dwelling among the son of... But, but they didn't see that. Instead, they were furious that he was making himself God and calling God his father. And at this, they lose it. They lose their cool. They blow a gasket. Verse 18, have a look there. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They thought Jesus was a madman, a lunatic, claiming to be God, and so he needed to be dealt with, put away, killed. But you see, they had failed to see what Jesus had done, that Jesus had done the truly remarkable healing a man sick, paralyzed for 38 years by speaking. You see, Jesus confirms his identity uh, as we've seen throughout John's Gospel again here that Jesus is the Son of God, the divine, eternal creator whose word is so powerful that he can heal someone by speaking. And although the Jews thought he was a madman, we need to listen to this guy today, Jesus today, 
we need to trust that what Jesus claims is true as we see in his actions. You see, the error for us today, I think, as we, as we hear Christ, and that might be for, for us as unbelievers here today, uh, is, that, is that we can think that, oh, sure, some of the things Jesus says that he's a good moral teacher, uh, but we can ignore the other aspects of what he says and deny that, that he's God. But you see, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this famous, uh, famous quote. Let me, let me read it for us, in, I think, to help us, help us here. A man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being, him be, his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so what Jesus said and claimed and did really gives us three different ways that we can view Jesus. Either we can think that he was a liar, that he was a lunatic, a madman, or that he is Lord, one to be worshipped. We can't just write off what he said as being a good moral teacher because the only sane way for us to respond, the only reasonable, reasonable way in light of what we've seen this morning in his words and his actions is to bow our knee in allegiance to him and worship him. For who else bar the Son, the divine Son of God, the eternal divine creator of all things, could ever heal a paralysed man for 38 years in an instant by the power of his word. Well, only the one who claimed to be God and was God. How will you respond to Jesus this morning? In full allegiance to him, living to him and holding firmly to his promises? I pray you will. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God Almighty, we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus. We are so thankful for the miraculous miracles, the miraculous things that he was able to do, showing his true identity as the God-man who came to dwell among us, doing what only you could do in showing us that he was God. Father, we are so grateful for that truth. Father, please help us, uh, for those, those among us who might not believe, help us to, that we may link the actions with Jesus in his words and see that they match, that we too may, may bow our knee in allegiance to Jesus. And for us who do believe, help us to so firmly trust the promises of Christ, particularly in the ups and downs and difficulties and challenges of life, but instead to hold on to the promises we have, the wonderful promises that, that will come uh, when the Lord Jesus comes. We pray that those promises will help us press on as we wait for our Lord Jesus to return. 
We are so thankful for your son, our Lord Jesus. Help us live for him each day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.